You can turn with me in the Word of God to the book of 1 Peter once again, near the end of your New Testament. Last week, we gave an introductory overview to 1 Peter, and let me just show you a basic overview of where we're going in this letter. I'm a big picture guy, so I kind of like a map to know where we are, but this is just a very basic overview. We are going to see the introduction today, which is really verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 12, Peter gives us somewhat of a preface, which is going to stress our new life in Jesus Christ. And then kind of like Paul does in a lot of his letters, how Paul will preface his practical exhortation with theological instruction. That's what Peter is doing in verses 3 through 12 of this first chapter. He was going to begin with telling us what we must know, and that will form the basis for what we must do, how we must live. But in verse 13 of chapter 1, we're going to see uh, sort of a a turn where Peter brings us to the body of his exhortation, how to live as a Christian in the midst of a non-Christian world, an ungodly culture. How can we be a godly people in an ungodly world? And that's really his message in chapter 1, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. And then finally, there's that conclusion in Chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. So in this morning study, we plan to complete the introduction of this letter. And let's stand as we read our text in God's word. I'm just going to read the first two verses. 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. And let's seek our Lord's help in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the health and ability, uh, the freedom, Lord, the opportunity to gather here in this place of worship. We know that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are here in our midst. We thank you for your people, your precious people that you've redeemed out of this world and that you have called to be a peculiar people to yourself. Lord, we have brothers and sisters meeting to worship you this Lord's day all across this world. And we pray that, uh, Lord, this morning you would be pleased with what takes place here in this side of the world, at this little portion, in this locality, Lord, that you have called us to shine as a light. Father, as we open your word, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit, both for your servant as the speaker and both for your people as the listeners, Lord, that we would all have ears and hearts to receive your truth that you desire to give us. This we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In the year 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. He conquered Samaria. And then he deported thousands of Jews from their homeland in Israel and brought them to live in Assyria and to adopt its culture. Now, according to Assyrian records, we're told that 27,290 Hebrews were taken into captivity. And these Jews were, at least in a national sense, part of God's chosen people. These were the chosen people of God, we know from 
the Old Testament, they had entered into a covenant with God, and they were then scattered or dispersed into the Assyrian Empire. But rather than taking up the life of a sojourner, as had their forefathers in the land of Egypt before them, these thousands of Israelites brought into Assyria, metaphorically speaking, sold their birthright for a bowl of soup. You know what I mean by that? They settled down, they settled in, they crossed culture with their pagan surroundings, they intermarried, exchanged gods, and would eventually become infamously known as the Ten Lost Tribes, of Israel. The story of the ten northern tribes of Israel is the story of a people who virtually lost their identity. They forgot where they came from, where they were going, who they were. And this illustrates for us a real danger. If you're not careful as a Christian living in this ungodly world, you can forget where you came from. You can, to a great degree, forget it, who it is you are, forget where it is you are going. And by identifying with the Christians of this text, our study this morning introduces some probing questions for us. What is your identity in this world? How do you relate to the world, the culture around you? What is your relationship with those gathered in this place of worship? What is it you share with people meeting to worship Jesus Christ this morning? What is your relationship, most importantly, to God? How does God himself identify you? These are important questions. Every one of us is seeking an identity because all of us has a desire for belonging. And this rebel world that we live in is continually attempting to give us our identity, to brand us with some identity, but the scriptures would tell us that this is a false sense of identity. This is a false sense of belonging that the world around us wants to give us. And so we must find our true identity in the word of God. We are, first and foremost, who God says we are. And this morning, Peter's, in Peter's introduction, he's going to unfold for us a tremendous theology of Christian identity, a theology or a philosophy of the people of God. And we might summarize it in the following statement. God has chosen himself, a people, to live as sojourners scattered throughout this world. God has chosen himself, a people, to live as strangers scattered across this world. Last week, we examined the man who God used behind this letter, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But the next three words that, that follow in Peter's, they follow Peter's self-introduction, are in the original Greek text, electois peripetomois diasporas. And that literally translates to this, to the elect sojourners scattered. And it is these three words, from these three words, that we are going to find three incredible truths about the people of God in this brief introduction. So Peter's first truth about these Christians from our English translation, and by extension what is true of us as God's people in this present age, is that in relation to the world, God's people are strangers. In relation to the world, they are strangers. He begins, to those who reside as aliens. Now, the Greek word for residing as aliens is a word that means to be a sojourner, a word that means to be a traveling pilgrim, a foreigner, a stranger. The same word is used and translated in 1 Peter 2.11 as strangers. 
That is who the people of God are in relation to this present world. Peter's alluding here to a familiar image of God's Old Testament people, the Jews, who in the age before us were sojourners in their own time. And so what I want to do is I want to spend a moment considering some parallels between God's people of the previous age and God's people of this present age. First, like the saints of the previous age, the nation of Israel, Christians have also been called out from the world. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. As Abraham was called out of the world, Christians have likewise been called out of this present world system. We are called to be a peculiar people to God, just as God formed the nation of Israel to be a peculiar people to himself, different from all the nations around them. Jesus told his disciples, I chose you out of the world, John 15, 19. God says to his people, come out of their midst. Come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord. 2 Corinthians six seventeen. In that context, he's talking about what fellowship has light with darkness. What fellowship has righteousness with sin, with unrighteousness? There is to be a difference. We are called out of the world. Secondly, Christians have been called to receive a promise. As God's people of the previous age were promised a land overflowing with milk and honey, God's people in this present age are looking to receive a promise, a inheritance. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 describes God's saints as having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out of, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What beautiful language to describe God's people of all time. That they are a people called out from this present world system and we are looking for another city. We are looking for another land. We are citizens of another country. Peter will mention a promised inheritance that Christians, his very readers, are presently seeking even in verse 4. So thirdly, Christians, like believers or God's saints of the previous age, Christians only sojourn temporarily in this world. Just as the Old Testament people of God sojourned temporarily in Egypt, so too our time in this world is just temporary. We sing, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. That is biblical. In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter will say, if you know the Heavenly Father, that is to say, if you're one of God's true people, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. His implication is, this isn't your home. Your stay here is just temporary. Don't get too comfortable. Fourthly, like God's people of the previous age, Christians must live differently than this world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world, Jesus would say. We are to be insulated, but not isolated. That's not to say that, as some have mistakenly thought, we are bound to follow all of the regulations that God gave to Israel. The difference that we have from this world is not simply 
by adopting all of the ceremonial laws and restrictions that God gave his people of the previous age. And we'll see that implied as we go through, we work through this letter. Nor is this difference that God would command of his people to say that we must be different simply for the sake of being different. We're not trying to be weird. Okay? We're not trying to just stick out. But Peter will go on to explain that we can't just live like everyone else. Why? Because we are the covenant people of God. In chapter 1, verse 15, he will allude to what God told his Old Testament people. It's the same thing to us. We are to be holy, even as God is holy. God wants us to be a people like himself, even if that makes us strange in this world, and it will. Finally, we might add that like God's people of the previous age, Christians in this age must overcome opposition. Being a Christian is going to mean you will encounter opposition. Just as Israel, when they were exiled into the land of Babylon or Assyria, wherever it was, they encountered hostility. They encountered persecution. There was pressure. Read the book of Daniel and you see there was pressure to assimilate into the culture, to worship the gods of Babylon. And so too, every Christian must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God, Paul would say, Acts 14.22. You aren't going to make it without tribulation. You aren't going to make it without passing through and overcoming opposition for the sake of Christ. Now, why were these Christians strangers to this world? Why is it that Paul's reader, or Peter's readers, or us for that matter, are strangers in this world. In one sense, that is true because this world itself is strange. Don't we live in a strange world? If you are one of God's people, you will invariably find this world a strange place. Like Peter's readers, we live in a strange world because this world is estranged from God. It's a world so estranged from God that in 1 John 2.15 God tells us, do not love this present world order. And if any man does love this present world order, he says that's because the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. This is why God's true people cannot genuinely feel at rest in this world. It's not our home. It is a world system at war with our Heavenly Father. It is a kingdom at war with our King. And so we cannot have a true, genuine, permanent sense of belonging here. Whether today or in Peter's time, Christians, that is true Christians, will find the world a strange place. That is the record of the Bible of the people of God from Old Testament to New Testament. And that is the record of church history. But Peter's readers will also find that they are strangers in this world because the world itself considered them strange. And Christian, you will find the world is a strange place because the world itself will consider you a stranger. A true Christian is one who truly holds to the beliefs and values of Jesus Christ and his apostles. Isn't that true? You know, being a Christian in the biblical sense of the term isn't calling yourself a Christian. Being a Christian in the biblical sense of the term is identifying with Christ. It is lining up with his teaching. It is lining up with what his apostles taught. And that means a true Christian cannot say truth is simply a matter of convenience. A true Christian cannot treat religion as nothing more than a matter of personal preference. Why not? No, a true Christian will believe with all their heart, however unpopular and however against the tides of the culture, that Jesus is, as he claimed in every sense, the way, 
the truth, the life, and that there is no way to God except through him. Well, unwillingness to compromise God's truth has always gotten God's people into trouble, hasn't it? Even in the, time, in the days of Rome, it was not a problem, it was never a problem that Christians worship Jesus. The Roman government was fine with that. The problem was Christians wanted to worship Jesus alone. And it is for that that Christians have, through the ages, suffered for the sake of Christ. Look, it won't cost anybody anything to say, I love Jesus, I worship Jesus, I follow Jesus. But you say Jesus Christ is the only way, which is exactly what Jesus taught, and is nothing less than what his apostles taught historically, and which is nothing less than the church through history has always believed and taught and suffered for. You too will find yourself facing opposition from this world. You will be labeled nonconformist. You will be pressured to just give up the truth and go along with the program. So the world was a strange place to God's people, and they were strange to the world. In relation to this world, Christians are strangers. In relation to the church, they are scattered. Peter will add, in relation to one another as the church of God, they are scattered. Look at verse 1. He says, they are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, the Greek word for scattered there is diaspora. It's a word that, uh, from where we get our English word disperse, and it means scattering, like the scattering of a seed. That's actually how they used it. Some farmer sowing or scattering his seed upon the open field. But the Jews would use the same Greek term to describe how God had once dispersed his people into Babylon, from the Babylonian exile, they actually called themselves the diaspora. They were the dispersed. They were the scattered people of God. And so Peter, what he's doing here is he's applying the same image to Christians in this present age. And And he's doing so as he writes to churches that are scattered throughout the empire. By comparing these scattered Christians to God's scattered people in the Old Testament, three interesting parallels arise, okay? First... Like the Jewish people scattered throughout the world centuries before, these scattered Christians also shared a common identity. I hope we realize there would be no sense in saying that we are scattered, Christians are scattered across the world unless we first understood we have something in common. We share some sort of common identity. Just like the Jews were scattered, but yet they still recognized themselves as having a common faith in the one true God Christians have a common identity. And Peter's going to work this out more fully in chapter 2. So we'll see more of that. But it's important to realize, for the Jews, this was a struggle. And I mentioned before, not all of them did retain their identity as God's people. Some of them simply assimilated into the culture. They gave up the worship of the one true God for the worship of pagan gods and everything else. But Christians must also, we must retain our identity however and wherever scattered across this world. Secondly, like the Jewish people scattered throughout this world, these Christians that Peter's writing to were also awaiting the return to their home. They're awaiting a return to their home. They lacked an earthly center. They had no Jerusalem. They didn't have a centralized temple. Their bodies were the temple of God. Actually, in uh, chapter 2, Peter's going to tell us that as living stones, these believers would collectively comprise a spiritual temple for the worship of God. But these Christians were, like the Jewish diaspora, living as though temporarily exiled. 
They were exiled awaiting a return to their homeland. For us, that is our dwelling with Christ when he returns. Thirdly, like the Jewish people scattered throughout the world, these scattered Christians also possessed, don't miss this, a great missional opportunity. Do you know that when God scattered the Jewish people through the exile, which was a judgment upon them, it was actually to the blessing of the entire world. You say, how, why is that? Because with the Jews scattering across the world went the knowledge of the one true God. And they built synagogues and they copied scriptures. And we can find those scriptures in various languages and places around this world because God scattered his people. Just like seed, diaspora, he dispersed them as seed upon this world to bring forth fruit to eternal life. Now, we see this is a pattern throughout the Bible then. The world has always needed the scattering of God's people. Even before the fall of man into sin, God told Adam that man is to be fruitful, to multiply, and to spread, to scatter across the face of the earth. And then we see, of course, as I mentioned, God's people scattered through the dispersion, through the exile. But the great commission that Jesus would give his disciples before ascending into heaven was that they also would go and scatter to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. God wants his people in every age to seed this world with the life-giving power of the gospel. That is our missional calling and opportunity as the people of God. So however unfortunate it might seem that God's people are scattered across the world and we hear about brothers and sisters suffering persecution, we must pray for them and we must not be ignorant of them and we must obey the Spirit of God to give and help them in any way we can. And yet we also must praise God that he has scattered his people across this world. Because that is the hope of this world. We are the light of Christ to shine in this dark place. So we've seen Peter identifies Christians, first of all, with respect to the world as strangers. We're strangers living in a strange land. Secondly, we've seen he identifies Christians with respect to the church as scattered. We're spread abroad this world. But now Peter identifies his Christian readers with respect to God. Notice the final three words of verse 1. Who are chosen? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. In relation to God, they are chosen. The people of God are his chosen people. Verse 2 explains clearly when Peter's talking about being chosen, he's talking about being chosen by God himself. And ironically, the last word of verse 1 in, in the New American Standard English translation is the word chosen. But actually, if you're reading a Greek text, you'll see that Peter lists this word chosen, electois, first. And I mention that simply because, even though our English translation might not reflect that, Peter wanted to emphasize that God's people were chosen. More important than the fact that God's people are strangers in this world and that we are scattered abroad from one another across the face of this earth is this fact. It is preeminent. It is the most important fact, defining fact about the people of God, and it is that they are chosen by God. This has always been God's primary designation for his people, both in Old and New Testaments. They are called his elect. That is his chosen 
But how and why does God choose who it is he chooses? Well, Peter's going to give us in verse 2 three truths to indicate how it is that God chose his people. How and why it is that these who are chosen are chosen by God. First notice, Peter says, verse 2, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's the basis of God's choice. God's people are chosen according to the Father's foreknowledge. Now, Peter's going to kind of throw us into the deep end of the pool. So you need to understand this because to the extent you grasp this, this is rich theological truth about our God, about our salvation, about our identity in Christ. Scripture teaches us two things about God's foreknowledge. That is what God knows about the future. First of all, God's foreknowledge is determinate. It is determinate. It is sovereign. What God foreknows is what he has sovereignly determined. In other words, God isn't simply aware of the future, but he's aware of the future because he has determined it to be so. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom God foreknew, talking about his people, just like right here, God foreknew his people, he also predestined. Foreknowledge, predestination, go hand in hand. They are inseparable to God. Acts 2, 23, Peter preached that Jesus, who was delivered over by his enemies, he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God's predetermined plan and what he would do with Christ and his foreknowledge of what would happen to Christ are inseparable. The two go hand in hand. God's foreknowledge does not operate independent of his sovereignty. Sovereignty. What God foreknows is also what he foreordained, what he determines. God's foreknowledge is determinate. All right, now that's important because some people will claim, well, God really chose us because he foreknew that we would choose him. God chose me because he knew that I would soften my heart and I would, in faith, choose him. Whereas he rejected somebody else because he knew they wouldn't choose him. In that situation, God's election, his choice of his people, is said to be conditional. Where God has conditioned his choice upon you, upon your choice of him. But is that what scripture teaches? That might make sense to a lot of people. We might think that's reasonable. We might find that plausible. But the scriptures teach us the exact opposite. Scripture teaches us that God chose us before we chose him. Ephesians 1.4 says God chose us before the foundation of the world, before anything was created that he created. And scripture teaches us God's choice of us wasn't based upon any merit of our own. Jesus said, you did not choose me. To his disciples, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John, 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. 1 John 4, 19 goes on to say, we love him because he first loved us. Scripture even teaches that we were dead in sin so that we could not choose God. Even if we felt we did or we wanted to, we could not possibly choose God, but God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4. Because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead, did you hear that? Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. Scripture is plain that God's choice of his people is based on his determinate foreknowledge, which is to say, if you believed on Christ, that's because God unconditionally, graciously chose you. 
Now, that's not to deny the reality of our human choice. That's not to deny the responsibility of human choice. But that is to say that anyone who chooses Christ ultimately does so by God's grace and only by God's grace. It is by his own unconditional choice. Now, I can't park here, but I will say next Sunday, if you'll come at 10 a.m., I'm going to actually be giving a primer on the doctrine of election, what the Bible says about it, so you can ask all your questions you'd like at that time. But we see that God's choice of his people, according to his foreknowledge, was a sovereign, determinate choice that God made. Now, someone reacting to this fact might say, well, so does that mean that God simply just chose, like randomly chose some to be saved? If, if God's choice of us isn't conditioned upon what we would do, upon what merit we had to bring to the relationship, then doesn't that mean God's choice was just impersonal? It means it was arbitrary. As if God's election was by some blind algorithm. Sort of like somebody might think God chose every fifth person with odd letters in their last name. You know, like a computer, right? So impersonal. But scripture teaches us God's foreknowledge is personal. God's foreknowledge of his people is determinate and it is personal. God's foreknowledge isn't merely factual information that God knew in the future about you, about his people, but it involves the kind of knowledge that comes by a personal, interactive relationship. And that is what we see throughout Scripture. When the Bible talks about God knowing his people, foreknowing his people, it's not talking about simply an intellectual collection of facts that God has compiled about you. He's keeping some kind of record about you. It is that God knew you in a personal, interactive, relative way. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, explains some of this, or really unfolds some of this mystery for us. Paul says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. Did you hear that? In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, none of us can fully profess or or profess to fully know the mind of God. Obviously not. But Paul is plain enough in Ephesians 1 that God's choice of us was anything but arbitrary. It was anything but some sort of casual uh, blind algorithm. God's choice of his people could not have been more intentional. That's what he wants you to know. From eternity, God knew what he would do, and he knew that he would choose you. Now think about that. If you believed on Jesus Christ, and you received him as your Lord and Savior, God's choice of you was from eternity past, and it was a personal choice. He chose you by name. He chose you knowing everything we would do. He knew everything you did this, this week, all the ways that you would offend him, and he chose you in spite of that. God did not choose you because you yourself We're so attractive as a sinner. Scriptures teach us the exact opposite about God's choice of his people. It is a choice that God makes of his people according to grace. Paul says, In love he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will, not my will, according to his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You know what that means? It's all of God. It's not of you. The fact that God's foreknowledge is determinate and personal means 
His choice of us was unconditional. Not conditioned upon us, conditioned upon himself, according to his own grace. Now, if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, and you're not excited about that, it's because you're asleep. It's because there's some kind of disconnect here. Because that is itself got to be the most exciting truth for a believer in the entire Bible. That God chose me based on his grace. That God loves me not because of who I am, but because of who he is. That means his love doesn't change. And amen is absolutely so true. We ought to glory in this fact. Praise God. His choice of his people was gracious. His foreknowledge, what he knew of us, was based on his own gracious choice. So Peter tells his readers, here's how you've been chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God, the sovereign personal plan of God the Father. That's the basis for God's election. But notice also the power of God's choice. God's people are chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Peter says it's, this choice was by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit here is God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit who's performing the sanctifying work in everyone who is one of God's true people. Peter, uh, Paul uses identical language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where he tells his Christian readers, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Same language. God chose you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, Peter's saying in our text that just as sure as you were chosen according to God's gracious predetermined choice, he's saying, or foreknowledge of you, he's saying, God intends for that choice to go to work on your life. God doesn't choose his people simply to leave them as strangers in this world. Another way to put it is God doesn't abandon his children. When God chooses a person, he sets and regenerates them by his spirit. He goes to work on them. And he finishes what he begins, Philippians 1.6. This process of God at work in his people is called sanctification. God's people are being sanctified by the Spirit of God. And this, this power of God in his people by the Holy Spirit is a process that involves two things. First of all, the Holy Spirit is continually weaning God's people off of this present world, off of the desires of sin. Infants have a natural desire for their mother's milk, right? We understand that. But there comes a time as an infant grows and begins to develop more that they gradually lose an interest in their mother's milk and they gain and develop a stronger and stronger desire for meat, for substance, right? And for some, like for our son, it was much sooner than the others. Well, that is the same thing that we find that God wants to effect in his people, the same sort of thing. God wants to wean us off of this world. God wants to change those desires that you have for things right now that are inordinate. They are sinful. They are desires in your heart that are contrary to the will of God. And you know it if you're a true believer in God. And yet you participate in it. And here's some hope for you, Christian. If God's chosen you, he wants to change your desires. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to wean you off those desires and give you his desires. Peter, in this very letter, gives us some, some evidence of the fact that his Christian readers are undergoing some of this change. In chapter 4 and verses 3 through 4, Peter lists several sinful desires which his Christian readers, he says, 
used to pursue. They used to be their simple desires, but now they were different. And they were different because as he's saying here, chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God was presently, continually at work in them. And that is God's desire. Not so that you wallow in your sin, but that by growing, he would draw you out of that sin and make you more like his son. You see, that is the positive side of sanctification. The negative side is the Holy Spirit drawing us out of the desires of this world, out of the desires of sin that displease our God. And the positive aspect of the same sanctifying work is that the same Spirit of God is transforming his people presently and continually into the image of God's Son. This theme is evident throughout Peter's epistle. Uh, Peter describes his readers as those who are not only being separated from the world, but they're being joined to God. And if you look down at verse 15, we see that they are called out of the world by God and have been set apart by God to be his holy people like him. That's the end game. That's the goal. That's the point of the process. God wants to make you like himself. And no one except the Spirit of God can do that. Isn't that true? You might have a capacity in this room to be a great concert pianist or you might have the capacity to be a great athlete or you might have the capacity to be a great artist or to do something great in some professional line of work but you can only be who and what God wants you to be by yielding to the spirit of God you can only be and become what God wants you to be by the sanctifying work of God's spirit that is our hope and our answer That's how God means to set his choice at work in us. Paul will tell us, here's some good news, Romans 8, 29. Maybe thinking, I don't know, I don't know if I can make it. Hey, look, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's got plans for you. If God chose you, God has plans to change you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we're beholding in a mirror, that's the word of God, the glory of the Lord, we are progressively being changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is exciting stuff. So it's because the Father's sovereign personal choice of his people that the Holy Spirit is now at work within his people. And God doesn't choose us to leave us the way we are. He chooses us to change us. So we've seen the basis for God's choice. We've seen the power of his choice at work in his people. But notice finally, Peter gives us the purpose of God's choice. God's people are chosen for the purpose of obeying his son, Jesus Christ. Peter addresses his Christian readers as chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, this is fascinating to me because I'll just point out that we have here all three members of the Holy Trinity here in verse 2. One place among many others that we see the apostles' understanding of the triunity of God. But here Peter's claiming the Father selected us, the Spirit sanctifies us, and the Son sprinkles us with his blood. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all intimately, inseparably connected in your salvation. But moving on, Peter is giving us the purpose for why the triune God chose us as his people and why he is at work in us. And it's in order that we might obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So there's three instances in the Old Testament 
that we find people were actually sprinkled with blood. This is interesting because we said before in our introduction that Peter was very knowledgeable with the Hebrew scriptures. So he certainly knew these instances. But I believe that it's the first and most prominent of these instances that Peter has in mind. And it's found from Exodus 24. Exodus 24, but I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. And this is as Israel was assembled at Mount Sinai before God. They are assembled because God is making a covenant with them. And we're told in Exodus 24, 7, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, that's the blood of the sacrifices, and sprinkled it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Notice the two elements involved in this covenant ceremony. They are the same two elements that we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Obedience and the sprinkling of blood. If you look down at 1 Peter, back at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you will see that Peter tells his Christian readers, Now you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a people for God's own possession. Peter is describing Christians in this present age using covenantal language because we are the covenant people of God. We have entered into a relationship with God via the new covenant. And the same language that God used of Israel in the Old Testament, Peter now applies the same language to Christians, God's new covenant people. Just as The people of Israel were sprinkled by the blood of sacrifices in Exodus 24 in order that they might enter into God's covenant and be consecrated to serve the Lord as his kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. Even so, in the same way, Christians of all times, you included, have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ so that we also might enter into a covenant with him. We're told a new and better covenant by the blood of his sacrifice, so that we also might obey Jesus Christ. We also might serve this world as a royal priesthood to draw man to God through Jesus Christ. That is exciting. That is the purpose. That's the point and plan of God's election of his people. He chose us according to his grace. He set his choice at work in us by his spirit. But understand, all of it is about entering in, bringing you into a covenant relationship with himself by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter closes his introduction to his readers in verse 2 with a formal blessing. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And what's interesting here is he's actually combining the standard greeting of the Old Testament people of God, which was shalom or peace, with the standard New Testament greeting of the people of God. Grace to you. And Peter brings it together. He says, grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You may be a stranger in this world. You may be scattered from your family in Christ across all this world. But if you are chosen by God, grace and peace in the fullest measure is your inheritance and nothing less in Jesus Christ. That's exciting. Peter's brief introduction gives us a neat profile of God's people. God has chosen himself a people to live as strangers scattered throughout this world. And Peter's readers, like like an orphan child, 
We're struggling to find their identity. Struggling for a sense of belonging, seeking a sense of belonging, living as aliens in a strong, uh, uh, in a strange land, longing for love, longing for a place to call home, but without any home in this world. But Peter now offers them, and by extension, he offers us this incredible truth. God has chosen you to be his own peculiar people, rejected by the world, but accepted in the beloved, accepted in him. It's a great comfort, isn't it? To know that we've been chosen by God. But it's really only a great comfort if you know that God has chosen you not on account of who you are, but on account of who he is. Hey, you might find yourself very attractive today. You might feel pretty good about your Christian performance this week, last week. What about next week? I'm telling you, if we honestly evaluate ourselves in light of the word of God, we will see how unworthy we are. But here is the hope. Here is the steadfast comfort of God's elect is that God never chose us based on who we are, but according to his own unchanging, eternal, sovereign grace. And if we claim to be God's chosen people, I think we've seen, there's a question to ask ourselves. And that question is whether or not we are being, right now, transformed into the image of his dear son. That's very practical. This is a very practical question. Do you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you lacking fruit in your life? Is there some change that you need to make, uh, be reconciled with a, a brother or sister, something you've said for which you need to repent, some sinful habit or vice that God is displeased with in your life? Is God at work in you? Or is it only just a profession of faith? If we claim to be God's true people, God's sanctifying spirit should be at work in us. But finally, one reason God's true people will obey Jesus Christ, we will obey Christ, is the fact that God's true people have been sprinkled with the blood of his sacrifice. We've entered into a holy covenant with God. And if that's you this morning and you've entered into a covenant with God, can we just remind ourselves of this as the people of God? We belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't have a right whether or not we're going to forgive somebody. You don't have a right whether or not you're going to get rid of that which has defiled your life. You don't have a right as to whether or not you, uh, to say whether or not you are going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ or whether you are going to gather with his church and worship Christ. That is not your choice because you belong to God and he chose you. Now maybe you're here and you're not certain you belong to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not sure you've ever repented of your sin and believed on him as your Lord and Savior. Well, the good news of the gospel is whosoever will. The message of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel that goes out to all and to any is whosoever will. And that is what we preach. Because Jesus said, any who comes to me, no exceptions, I will certainly not cast out. But I can tell you one thing that is always true of anywhere in history. The reason people die and perish eternally is because they do reject Jesus Christ. They never come to him. So if that's you, please come as Jesus invited and be saved. Let's pray.